It's been a good week in the Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, I ask that you turn to Titus. Titus chapter 1, that's where we're continuing to exegete the Word of God, and that's, we're committed to it. That's what we are. We've talked, to it, uh, talked about it amongst the men, and we are committed to taking as much time as it needs to preach this book and any other books that we come in uh, contact with. We're not in any hurry, and so uh, it is good to be able to sit before the Word and to exegete it to its fullest or the best we can within the time we are allotted. So Titus chapter 1. Is where we're at. And we're still in this great salutation. Phil opened us up with, and we've, uh, and John, uh, second, he came through, uh, finished up verse one, and then we're in verse two and finish up through verse four, the uh, first three this week, and then Phil will finish up verse four in a couple weeks. So, um, Titus chapter one. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to have your word. What grace it is to have your word in written form. To be able to come to it day in, day out, over and over again. We can read it. We can see what you have said. We can study what you have said. We can put it into action. Uh, Father, help us to be people who are of the word and by the word and obedient to the word. Thank you for the Word made flesh. Thank you for Christ and Him coming and wrapping on flesh and being our Savior. Thank you for the Apostle Paul for diligently and responsively being your slave and servant and entrusted with a great Word. Thank you for what he's written here. Thank you for how it has impacted my life and I pray that the Holy Spirit does a number on our lives as well tonight. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week we looked at the eternal and unchangeable purposes of God, how Paul was committed to the purposes of that God had set before the foundations of the world. He, he says in verse 2, "...in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago." And we looked at how Paul was committed to teaching about eternal life. He was, he was committed to teaching about the hope of the glory uh, that God has given us, the hope of eternal life, uh, the hope, uh, this eternal hope. That was, Paul used that to encourage believers and this hope, this eternal life, it was something that was promised long ages ago and we looked at that and it was an eternity past, something promised by God. And this week we want to continue at looking at Paul's other commitments as a slave of God and apostle Jesus Christ. John looked at it a couple of weeks ago that Paul was committed to evangelism. He was committed to seeing that the lost were saved. He was also committed to seeing that the, the, the saved were sanctified. And then he was also committed to see that they were encouraged. That's what we looked at last week. They were encouraged in their, their eternal hope. 
And John, he, he had talked about a couple of weeks ago where, where uh, uh, he talked about this foreknowledge of God and this predestination of God, how God had predetermined man to be saved, certain the, the elect to be saved, those chosen of God. But he also said that that's not where God left it. He didn't just leave it. If he chose it and, and that's it. I, I, if you remember last week, I let the end of the sermon that how, how is it, what is it part, what do we have to do with this salvation? What do we have to do with, what is our part? What is our responsibility? Does God just zap us and say, you're saved? Does he say, hey, this is, this is, I just, you're walking around with a big E on your face and, and that's who we know who are saved. And so we don't have to preach the gospel to anybody else. How is it that people are saved? How, how does this thing play out? And that's what we're going to look out today of what Paul was concerned with, what he was committed to was, was not only the eternal purposes and the unchangeable purposes of God, but he was also committed to the responsibility of a preacher. He was committed to the responsibility of what each one of us must do, is, and that's to preach the Word of God, because without the preaching of the Word of God, no man is saved. And so I want to look, first of all, this, this evening at what Paul was committed to, and that is, number one, is God's saving word. Paul is committed to God's saving word. Paul writes, "...in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His word in the proclamation which, with, which, which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior." Paul, he was committed to seeing everyone coming to saving faith in Christ. To seeing them grow in their faith and to ultimately be encouraged by, eternal, by the eternal life they now have set, that has been set forth in eternity's past. But that message, this message of eternal life in Jesus Christ is set forth in no other place than in God's divine truth. It's set forth in no other place than God's Word. And Paul was committed to this divine source. He was committed, committed to the Word of God, to the divine source of life and godliness. He was committed to the saving hope within the gospel. That's what we see here. He says, at the proper time manifested even His Word. And, and I think the ESV translated it, translates it better as, but at the proper time manifested in His Word. I think that's a better translation than NASB. But, but Paul says this eternal decree promised long ages ago was manifested. Fenero. Uh, made visible that which has been hidden or unknown. And this revealing was done, Paul says, it was done at the proper time. Keros idios is the, the Greek term. It was, it was, in fact, it was, it was, uh, uh, brought forth in God's own time. It was God's proper time. That being the time that God had determined or set in, in His most excellent wisdom and omniscience to reveal in, in, in time the realities of what we talked about last week, the pactum salutis, that eternal covenant that was set forth in eternity past. And so I was really challenged this week with this text because there's a couple of questions come, come to mind as I'm reading this and, and, and a couple of things that I was trying to think about and I asked Phil and I had to call a couple of other pastors to try to figure this thing out of what, what is Paul talking about? What is, what is he referring to when he talks about the period or this, 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 um, the proper time? And, and then what is he talking about? What is being revealed? 
What is that that is being manifested? What, what word was Paul talking about being manifested? When was this revealed? Was eternal life not known to Adam and the prophets? Didn't the Old Testament saints not know that they would be with God one day? Didn't they know about eternal life, the hope of eternal life? So what are we talking about this word being revealed? Was it when the word stepped onto the scene, as John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the, and the word was with God, and the word was God? Is that what he's talking about? If so, what makes this Pauline statement unique? That, that's what I was racking my brain with. Well, I think... We have to first think about the term time and what it means, this, this keros. The term time can mean two different things. It can, it can mean a measure of time, whether, it means a measure of time whether large or small. For instance, in Matthew chapter 11 verse 25, it says, at the time, keros, there's our same word, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That would be a, a definite time, that a specific hour, minute, second that Jesus would have said that. You could have put a watch to it and said, this is when Jesus said that. That would have been a specific time. Or this keros could mean a, a, a span of time, uh, ages, long ages ago, a period of time. Luke chapter 21, verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive to all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled under the foot by the Gentiles until, here's our word, the times, keros, of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That, that is not a specific point in time, but there's a, there's a period of time. Or Acts chapter 14, verse 17, and, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful Seasons, that's that word, keros, times, the season here, uh, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So as I look at the context, and I think as we look at the context and we look at what Paul's writing about, as he's writing the salutation, what is he getting at? And then also you look at some of the other Pauline writings that have to do with uh, a certain wording that he uses elsewhere that, that we see we can go and we can use our hermeneutics and we can take a verse that's unclear and go to other verses that are very clear in what he's saying and we can kind of combine those together and see what it is that Paul, I think, is saying here. And I believe that he's saying here uh, um, uh, in this word... And so what I believe is that Paul's not really keying on one singular event. He's not saying, hey, at this specific time, the word was manifested to me and this is it. I don't think that's what Paul is referring to here. And, and, and so let me explain. If you have your Bibles, turn to first, uh, uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 25. Colossians chapter 1 verse 25. And there's going to be a, uh, there's going to be a lot of scripture here, but, but I want you to look at this verse in particular. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which was hidden from the past ages and generations, but now, here's our word, been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It, this is almost just as what Paul just said. This is pretty similar to what he said. I mean, we even see several of the same terms. Uh, minister, stewardship that God bestowed, the preaching of the Word, the manifestation of the Word, or something that has been manifested to the saints. 
Paul, he, in this verse, he's, he's speaking over, he's discussing his ministry and really his identity as a minister of God. Sounds familiar. And so he starts listing off several key features of ministry. He says that God is the one who has stewarded this ministry over to him. We'll get to that later. And it was for the church's benefit, their, their salvation as well as their edification. Something else that we've heard. And then he gives the scope of this ministry. He says, so that he might fulfill the preaching of the Word of God. Paul states simply that the scope of this ministry is to do what God has commanded him to do. And proclaim the Word, to teach His Word to believers in truth and in grace. But then he goes on to a little bit further and he explains what the subject of that ministry is. Specifically, this is what Paul says the subject of his ministry is, is that the mystery which was hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been what? Manifested to his saints. So what is this mystery that Paul speaks about that was hidden from the Old Testament saints or hidden from the past? Anytime it says hidden from the past, that would be the Old Testament saints. And now has been re- uh, revealed or manifested to these New Testament saints. What is this mystery, Paul? What are you talking about? What is this that we did not know? Well, first of all, you must understand is that when the mysteries is used a couple of times in, in Scripture in the New Testament, Paul's the one who uses them. And there's a couple of meanings when he uses that. But one of, when he uses mystery... Mystery means that it is something that was hidden in the past and has been revealed in the new. It is now revealed. It is it did not know it in the past, but it is now revealed in the new. It is a mystery. So Paul says that the mystery was it was hidden from the past ages and generations, but Paul says that they have now been manifested. It has been, now been manifested and it has been revealed to his New Testament saints. In fact, the author of Hebrews, he writes something very similar to this. In Hebrews chapter 1, right at the very beginning, he writes, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last... There's that, there's that in the past. And in, he says here, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, with whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. There you see God speaking to the fathers and the prophets in the Old Testament in one way. And in these last days, God is speaking to the New Testament saints in a very... Or you could say the prophets as well, or the apostles, in a different way in the New Testament. It's in His Son. So you say, what's the difference between these two ages? What's the mystery that has been kept from the old age and is now manifested into the new age? Well, the mystery is the new covenant. It's the new covenant. It's the revelation of Christ incarnate. It is we, we as New Testament saints have benefited from the revelation of Jesus Christ and this is the mystery that has been made known. You as New Testament believers, we have 66 books, we have the Bible, and we have the revelation of Jesus Christ manifested and we can see it in the Word, we can hold it. We are, we are grace-filled and very fortunate to be able to see that. The Old Testament saints did not have that. But us New Testament, we can see and we can look and we can See, that is Him. That is Christ. That is what God purposed in eternity past and now it has been made known in His Word in Christ. And we can look back and we can see that. We are blessed by that. And that is the mystery. This new covenant, this mystery, this, this incarnate Christ, the Christ who will come and dwell within man, who will save man. That is the mystery that Paul is referring to. 
You see, as New Testament believers, we those, uh, those under the New Covenant have something the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament uh, fathers did not have. It wasn't that they didn't have salvation. They had salvation because their salvation was faith in a coming Messiah. And our salvation is, a Messiah, our salvation is based in the Messiah who has come. But it's a full understanding of God's plan of redemption. It's a full understanding of that pactum salutis that we get to see that was in eternity past, but now, and, and God could have kept that to Himself, but He has revealed it to us through His Word and through Christ. The fullness of the New Testament revelation from first to last. In the Old Testament, the Jews, they, you think about it, they knew only bits and pieces of the puzzle. Uh, that's what Hebrews uh, is saying is that, that God spoke long ago to the prophets and the, and the fathers in many portions and in many ways. You see, God didn't reveal the old, to Old Testament saints everything that we know about Christ. In the Old Testament, God, He revealed things in dreams. He revealed them in visions. He revealed them in revelations. He revealed them in, 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 uh, in personal revelations to the prophets from God as He spoke directly to them and they heard Him audibly. He even revealed them in a donkey. That's how God revealed things. We also see God communicating through events that were a foreshadow to come. We see Isaac. He go, John referenced it earlier. We see Isaac go up the mountain with his dad, Abraham, up the hill. And Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac upon that altar. But Isaac was merely a foreshadow to come of the greater sacrifice, the greater lamb to be sacrificed. The better son, Jesus, would be the lamb that God Himself provided. We see another lamb slaughtered in Exodus chapter 12, a spotless lamb that could not be sacrificed if it had a broken bone and it had to live with the family for a short time with its people. And the lamb's sacrifice could remove the sting of physical death. But when then we look to the fuller picture in Christ and in the New Testament, what do we see? We see the spotless lamb of Christ. We see him hung upon a cross, not one bro broken bone. We see the Christ, the God-man come and dwell with his people, right, for a short time. And not a bone in his body was broken. And this sacrifice removed the sting of eternal spiritual death. So we see historical events that were prophetic imageries that were to come, types and shadows, as, we've call, as they're called, and we've studied that in the past. He talks about many portions as well. No, no prophet ever got the full picture of what was coming, just small bits and pieces, fragments of the story. But the prophets, they wanted to understand salvation. In fact, that's what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. They knew about grace. They knew about salvation. He says, to you made careful searches and inquiries. They would look and they would study their scriptures and they were looking to try to figure this thing out. He says, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted. God had predicted that the Messiah was coming. They knew it was coming and they searched their scriptures. They searched the times. They inquired about it. They could not figure it out. They received the gift of salvation, but with ever, without ever seeing or knowing the Savior Jesus Christ, without ever fully understanding all that was involved in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. So they studied and they searched and they inquired. From the beginning in the garden, Moses writes in Genesis about the fall, right? You remember that of mankind in the, and in the garden. We see God pronounce... 
um, that God would, what, in Genesis 3.15, that He would put enmity between the, the, the woman's seed and the, and the, and the, uh, the serpent's seed, and he, he shall bruise you on the head, and, and you will bruise Him on the heel, or He will bruise you on the heel. We see this seed crusher early on coming from the very beginning, from the outset of man, uh, uh, from the fall. Small piece of information, but not made clear. Kind of enigmatic if you don't have the full picture. But then next we see, the, we see Abraham come, called out of the earth of Chaldees and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And from you, that seed is going to come. Abraham did not understand that. He looked, what did he have? He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. Ishmael was not the promised son. It was going to come through Isaac. Isaac then has two, two children. He, well, he has Jacob and Esau. And it, who's it going to come through? It's going to come, not going to come through Esau, but it's going to come through Jacob. Jacob, the, the seed is going to come through you. And out of Jacob comes the tribe of Judah. It has 12 tribes, but it is only Judah that the Messiah is going to come out of. And then as we get into uh, Samuel, we see this prophet king rise up. His name is David, and he's the great king, but he is not the Messiah. In fact, his son is not the Messiah, but it is promised that through his seed that the Messiah is coming. Bits and pieces prophesied throughout the Old Testament. We see Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah prophesy of this, this Messiah to come. Progressively, as time went on, God, He revealed more and more truth in the Old Testament, but yet the, still the whole picture was not there. Isaiah predicted that he would be born of a virgin and the government would be on his shoulders and he would be the mighty God. Daniel predicted the timing of his birth. Micah predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah predicted that he would be portrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver and be pierced. The Psalms, they writers, they prophesied that the Messiah it would suffer as well as Isaiah did. So a Messiah that would be born, that would suffer, and that would triumph. That's very interesting. They could not put the pieces together. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would save his people. God, through Jeremiah, he predicted a new covenant. A promise by God that would give life, that would produce righteousness. One that would not fade away and that, would, and that was permanent. One that brought hope. One that included Gentiles. One that was crystal clear and not hazy. One that was Christ-centered. A covenant that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. A covenant that promised that Christ would live within you. Small pieces of the puzzle. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets spending their time trying to understand its wonders and the grace of God and the greatness of salvation. The idea of progressive revelation comes into play. Whereas the Old Testament anticipated Christ's coming, the New Testament records His coming. And so were God's revelation in the Old Testaments were about types and shadows and ceremonies and prophecy. We see in the New Testament the final completion of those in Christ. Christ has come and He has fulfilled the new covenant. He has drew to Himself Jew and Gentile and as one in Him. And it's in Christ that when Christ comes and He is born and He lives and He teaches and He dies and He is raised, we see this beautiful portrait come into full view. The jigsaw puzzle has been put into place. The pieces have been put in place. And at the end we see Christ. We see the beauty of Christ. We see how it all plays out and how it all came together. What everything they prophesied of, it is in Christ. The Old Testament prophets never really understood who that Messiah would be. And when He would appear and how He would reside with His people, that by living in the very bodies 
of His people. They didn't get that. They didn't understand that. And so Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, God willed to make known what is the riches of His glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you see that? What God has revealed in the New Covenant and has revealed in Christ is that He wants to make known to you that if you have Christ, then you are rich. You are rich with the inheritance. And that is what Christ has given you. The inheritance of God. Salvation. He has redeemed you. Listen, the Jews never saw in the Old Testament the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. You and me. They they may have understood how the Messiah related to Israel, but they never understood the relationship of an indwelling Messiah to the Gentiles. They could not wrap their heads around that. You think about it, they were the enemies of the Jews. They could not wrap this head around of Jew and Gentile being together, especially God dwelling within the Gentiles. But this is the church. This is us today. This is Christ dwelling in us within the church. The richness that we have in Christ, Jew and Gentile, under the new covenant. That Christ made, that, Christ, that God promised and that Christ came and instituted. And so this, this becomes a theme in Paul's heart as he teaches and preaches about Christ. Specifically, remember, Paul was a, a, an apostle to who? The Gentiles. So this becomes a theme to him because God has said to him, you shall go to the Gentiles and be my apostle to the Gentiles. And so among revelation given by God for our particular age, the age of the church, is information specifically given through Paul revealing this truth which he has referred to as a mystery. Paul, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to entrust you with something that the that the prophets and the apostles or the prophets and the fathers did not know. I'm going to reveal this mystery to you, and you are to go to take this to the world. And so it was in time that God manifested this truth, his divine word, his gospel, the new covenant, to Paul and to the other apostles. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 18, we read it all the time. And it's a great verse. He says, Paul prays, he says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding should be enlightened. Hey, I'm praying that you understand this. I'm praying that the God will work in your heart so that you may be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of His calling and the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. In Ephesians, Paul was praying for the hope of the glory. We see that in Titus as well. And what else does he pray for? Not only the hope of the glory, that they have hope in this glory, right? Set in Christ and and, and predetermined before the foundation of the world that you have this, but also the richness of the inheritance given over to the saints. This is the subject of Paul's ministry. And it was at, at his heart to tell people, did you know that the living God wants to dwell within your life and give you the riches of his inheritance? That's an amazing statement. That's the statement that we're to give people today, right? As we evangelize, the, the living God wants to dwell within you and He wants to bring you from a sinner who is outcast into His family adopted and He wants to give you everything that He has. He wants to give you everything, lavishly give you everything. Not only do you go from an enemy and just seated at the table, but you, you are inherited with it all because God has given it over. That's Paul's message to the Gentiles and to the, to the lost world. This is the, uh, the, the Ephesians 3.17. He says that Christ dwells in our hearts. The living God dwells within us. What a principle. 
2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God. That's the new covenant. I will be their God. I'm going to dwell in them, and they will be my people. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not Christ, but lives in me. That's an amazing statement. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is, was given to me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. There we go again. But referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. He says it again, just exactly what we saw in Hebrews, exactly what we saw in uh, um, Colossians, and exactly what we're seeing in Titus. And what's the mystery? Well, he says it, if you keep reading, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body partakers of His promise by what? The gospel. That's the mystery. That's what Paul puts together. It's been manifested to him and he's to give over the mystery is that Gentiles, you can be a part of that. It's not only Jews, but it's Gentiles as well. Remember, Peter didn't even get that. And when we read in the book of Acts, he couldn't understand it. And he had to be shown that, that they are fellow partakers of this. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that this gospel is for Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, slave and free. It is for everybody. The mystery is that Jew and Gentile are made fellow heirs in one body in Christ to receive and possess God within them, a, a promise that was made by God, and it happens because of the gospel, is what Paul says. God planned it, Jesus prayed for it in the garden, and died for it, and Paul became a prisoner over it. Oneness in Christ Jesus. So it's not that just God sets it up in eternity past and we say, oh, He is... Yes, we do believe He's sovereign over that and He just lets it go. No, He uses man to accomplish His will and, and His purposes. This is the subject of the ministry of Paul. But not only Paul, Luke and Barnabas and Mark... And John and all the other apostles, this is what they preached. They preached the gospel. They weren't running around the world saying, Now all you people, please try and, and go and do better. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and try to obtain salvation. They weren't forcing somebody into an imposed ritual or a ceremonial work. That's not what they were doing. They were not saying, hey, come over to a, to a, to a church over here or to a cult or a religion. They weren't saying that. They were saying, come to a man. Come to the God-man. Starting with John the Baptist and running through all the New Testament preachers, through the early church fathers, the reformers, and even now, godly men who have committed, and women who have committed their, uh, to the, to, uh, committed their lives to the Lord and Savior and have it made it their responsibility to preach the word of the gospel that, that you are a sinner and that you're in need of a Savior and He wants to enter you and you enter Him. It on goes. It keeps going. A positional oneness that then calls for us to live it out. That's the message of us. That's the message of the church today. That's the message of the new covenant. That was the message of Paul as well. Paul, he, he didn't come preaching and teaching of his own word or his own philosophy, the philosophy of the day. He didn't come doing that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I didn't come to you, brethren, with human wisdom, 
I didn't come with you philosophy. I, I came to you with the cross, determined to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Notice verse 27 of Colossians chapter 1. If you look back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of this glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, that's what we talked about last week. All the glory that could ever be, uh, that it could ever be will only be yours when Christ is what? When it's in you. It's the only way you have hope of glory is, because, is that Christ is in you. The only hope a man ever has for glory, now and in the future and under any condition, is when Christ dwells richly within him. So that which occupied the constant gazing and studying of the prophets became the constant theme of the New Testament preachers, that God wants to live inside of you. Paul, he, he writes something... He writes something similar in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for what? The gospel, according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all of eternity. There's our scripture from last week. Your salvation was granted to you in Christ from eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through what? Through the gospel. It's the center of the New Testament preaching that we, that we see from the apostles, that of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that is the power unto salvation. It's the gospel that bears out the eternal covenant that could not be seen per se and actually is the means by which eternal life would be attained by men. The gospel teaches us that Christ came and went to the cross and died for our sin, providing the salvation for us. Christ took our punishment and by faith we received the gift of salvation and His righteousness. And by that exchange we have the peace with God, standing in the grace of God and rejoicing in the hope that we have because of what Christ has done for us. It unites Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Greek and barbarian, Asian and American, washed in the same blood of Jesus Christ, all receiving the same eternal life, given the same Holy Spirit, possessing the same life of God and inheritance, going to the same heaven, belonging to the same church. We are one. We are unified. And it is because of our Savior that we're unified. Not only that, but the gospel teaches us that no longer are we a slave to sin, but we walk in a newness of life. We are now slaves of God, free from the law, no more penalty to pay. We receive a new nature and we delight in the law. And we walk in obedience to Christ as we are transformed into His image. We have the Spirit within us interceding for us as He prays upon our behalf. There is no condemnation for the believer in Christ. This is the fullness of the gospel. This is the word that was manifested to Paul through God and he was set out as a preacher, as a minister to deliver this great news. One final scripture to nail this in the coffin. If you haven't got enough and you don't believe me, one final scripture. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 27. Paul comes to the doxology, whereas you look, if you look at the, the whole epistle of Romans, you can actually see that is the gospel spelled out in 15 and 16 chapters. He spells it out, but look at this, look at this doxology that Paul comes to. He says, this is verse 25 through 27 in chapter 16. Now to him, 
That's God who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. There's the preaching, right, of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. There's our word. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience to the faith, to, only, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Paul said it was manifested to me. And I revealed the mystery. And the mystery was the gospel. That Christ will reside in you. What a great mystery. What a great gospel. Man can't make that up. Paul certainly couldn't make that up. So Paul's committed to God's Word, to preaching and to teaching and warning every man in all wisdom so that he can present every man perfect in Christ. He's committed to the manifested gospel of Jesus Christ, that which saves, that which edifies, that which encourages the eternal hope within the believer. And that manifested Word, that manifested gospel, it's found nowhere else but in the Bible. Sixty-six books, we see it. That is where we find We don't make it up. This message, the message that accomplished salvation and edification and sanctification and the hope of eternal life, it's not made up by man. It's not, we don't, we don't go to to Joseph Smith. We don't go to the doctrines and covenants of the, the, uh, uh, of the, uh, Mormon church. We don't go to, uh, the Book of Mormon. We don't go to Jehovah's Witnesses version. We go to the inspired Word of God and we see the salvation, we see the, the manifested Word of God in its fullness and we can see the hope of Christ in the pages of Scripture. You want to lead a man to salvation? You want to lead a woman to salvation? Open up the Word of God. Expose it to them. See. Let them see Christ within the pages of the Word, of, of Scripture. Let them know that they're a sinner. And you can read it through Scripture. Let them know that they're a sinner and they're in need of a Savior. Want to grow a man up in righteousness? Turn to Scripture. Trying to counsel them through a tumultuous time of trial and suffering? Counsel them in Scripture. But I want you to see that Paul doesn't just use any means by which he ministers the gospel of grace. He ministers by the primary means of preaching. That's my second point of the night, is the primary means. Paul was not only committed to the saving gospel, to the saving word, but he was committed to the primary means. Paul says, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation which which I was entrusted. Paul says that God's primary means or primary instrument by which his word is manifested or revealed is by the proclamation of it. What does the word proclamation mean? Kerygma is the Greek term and it means to proclaim or to herald in public or to be a public crier of something. It means to herald or in our terminology today to preach It's translated preaching in the New Testament just as much as it is proclamation. Either way, they mean the same thing. The term refers to the public public heralding of the revealed Word of God which evangelizes the lost, sanctifies the saved, and encourages the persevering believer. Paul, he uses the term in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. He says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached or kerygma to save those who believe. The foolishness of the gospel saved those people because it was preached, is what Paul says. Paul understood that it was God's primary means of preaching the gospel which man comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Again, going back to what John said is, is man's not walking around with a big E on the forehead and saying, that man saved, that man saved. We don't know. 
That's why we must herald the Word to everybody. And in time, if they are of God's sheep and they have been chosen in eternity past, they will, by the work of the Spirit, come to know Christ. But it is only people are getting saved if the Word of God is preached. Paul charged young Timothy to do the same. 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready and in season and out of season. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say preach what you want to, Timothy. He doesn't say preach your felt feelings. He doesn't say preach a prosperity gospel. He doesn't say preach anything else. He says preach the Word and be ready for it. At all times, be ready to preach the Word. He says, out of seat, correct and rebuke and exhort with great patience and instructions for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and they will turn their ears away from the truth and they will turn aside the myths. But as for you, you self-restraint in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Preach the Word. Paul charged Timothy to preach the Word. He charged Titus, charged Titus, preach the Word. He writes it as an imperative, a must. Paul makes it clear that the Word of God alone is able to, to meet the mission of the preacher. The reason this is, is so is that the Word of God is the authoritative instrument from the throne of God to accomplish God's mission to the world. It is the authoritative instrument that we are not to neglect. It's able to train up in righteousness and to make the man of God adequate, thoroughly furnished, into all good works, the Bible tells us. The prophets understood this, for this is what they did. They preached. Jeremiah was the, the, he was the, the, the weeping preacher. Isaiah was a preacher. Zechariah was a preacher. Abraham was a preacher. Moses was a preacher. Guess who else was a preacher? Christ, God's own Son, was a preacher. Following Him were the apostles. They were preachers. The book of Acts bears witness to the early apostles as a preacher. It was Timothy and Titus' primary duty to preach the Word of God. How about church history? It gives evidence to the power of preaching over centuries. Dr. Lawson, he says this, Every single mountain peak in church history, without any exception, are the high water marks for preaching. The low valleys, the wilderness times in church history have been where there has been the withholding of God's sending preachers. Those golden eras of church history is when God raised up the preachers of the Word of God. The Puritans, they believed in preaching so much that they said ten times out of ten to sit under the preaching of the Word of God would be the greatest sanctifying effect upon your spiritual life. And so it is the task of the pastor, the evangelist. Every man and man stands behind the pulpit to proclaim the Word if he would be faithful to his calling is to preach the Word of God. And we're in a famine in this land of the preaching of this Word of God. We're in a famine because man wants to preach himself or he wants to preach some type of vain philosophy. That's why we're not seeing people come to Christ. That's why we're not seeing people sanctified and edified and have the atope of eternal life. And that's why we see people doubting their salvation because we have men who stand behind the pulpit and want to preach themselves and not the authoritative Word of God. And the reason why we see lost souls continuing to go to hell is because we're lacking on preachers of the gospel. We must have preachers, not only men, but we need women. Every Christian is called to be a preacher of the Word of God. I might add, it's not just any kind of preaching. It's not getting up here and preaching yourself or parading your personal opinions or expounding upon human wisdom or nonsense stories 
or reading a scripture and then going off on a tangent about something that scripture has nothing to do with. It's not getting the crowd whipped up in some kind of frenzy or crazy madness with a ham and organ playing behind you. It's not about any of that. John Calvin rightly says, he defined preaching as this, it is the public exposition of Scripture by the man sent from God in which God Himself is present in judgment and in grace. In other words, God is unusually present by His Spirit in the preaching of His Word. Such preaching starts with God, continues with God, and it ends with God. One of the greatest preachers to ever uh, in our modern century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he makes the point as follows. He says, what is the chief end of preaching? It is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. Preaching is first of all a proclamation of the being of God. Preaching worthy of the name starts with God and with a declaration concerning His being. Nowhere do we hear about myself and man as far as the preacher himself imposing himself upon the the, the text. It is about God. One more. R.L. Dabney the influential 19th theologian and pastor, 19th century theologian and pastor, he says this, The preacher's is a herald. His work is heralding the king's message. Now the herald does not invent his message. He merely transmits it and explains it. It is not his to criticize its wisdom or fitness. This belongs to the sovereign one alone. On the other hand, he's an intelligent medium of communication with the king's enemies. He has brains as well as a tongue, and he's expected so to deliver and explain his master's mind that the other party shall receive not only the mechanical sounds, but the true meaning of the message. On the other hand, it wholly transcends his office to presume to correct the tenor of the proposition which he conveys. By either additions or change, the preacher's business is to take what is given him in Scripture as it is given to him and to endeavor to import it on the souls of men. All else is God's work. Dabney says the preacher is to be one who heralds the king's message, expound upon it, but neither adding to it nor changing it. And that's what expository preaching declares, is the full counsel of God in Scripture. Every written word being expounded upon, no truth let untaught, no sin unexposed, no grace unoffered, no promise undelivered. That's what the leaders of the church have sought out to do. That's what Paul sought out to do. He was a preacher. The man of God has nothing to say apart from the Bible. The man of God is tethered to the Bible because that is, that is what, that's the only thing that we have. And he is with Paul and the other apostles preaching Christ with him and him crucified. The preacher is limited to one task and that is to preach the word of God. And so when I say that Paul was committed to the primary means of preaching, I mean that Paul understood that men and women would not be saved apart from the preaching, the heralding of God's Word. That's how people come to know Christ through the preaching of the Word. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they've not heard? And how will they not hear without a preacher. No one is getting saved apart from us preaching the Word of God. And that doesn't necessarily have to be from behind this pulpit. When Cindy goes to work and she expounds upon the Word of God, she preaches the Word of God to those patients. As John goes to work 
And he, he's sitting there with his mortgage and, and dealing out a mortgage. He preaches the Word of God. And that's how people are saved. When my daughters and Reagan and them go to school and go out into... As Reagan goes out into uh, uh, confidential care and she sees these mothers who are wanting to give up their child and murder their child, she's able to counsel them and she preaches to them the Word of God because she knows that is the power unto God unto salvation. The Gospel. Last week I read James 1.18... In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. In the exercise of His will, God brought us forth by the what? The word of truth. God in His infinite wisdom and grace used human hands to write the Bible as He directed and He used His humans as preachers of His manifested gospel to bring about the word of truth to lost sheep so that they might be brought forth to eternal life. What grace we have. What grace that God uses sinners as ambassadors for Him. Paul understood God's electing purposes and that God elected some people for salvation in eternity past. But he also understands that God has chosen to use His preaching of His Word through mere mortals as a primary means by which people are going to be saved. Not only is preaching the Word of God the means by which God uses to bring someone to Christ, but it is also the leading role in conforming the individual members of the local church into the image of Christ. Like produces like. And it's this that we see when the Word of God is preached. Preaching the Word of God brings the sanctifying power of Scripture to bear upon our lives of the congregation and is the chief influence to affect personal holiness and Christ-likeness. Paul writes in Thessalonians that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as words of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God which is also effectively works in you who believe. The Word of God effectively works in the lives of believers and we receive it eagerly like a sponge. I can remember just like it was yesterday as God's Word was unveiled to me and I just wanted more and more and more of it and I eagerly sought it, right? Because it was truth. That's what we want is truth. We are truth seekers. We want to see truth and God effectively uses the Word to bring about truth in our lives. When it comes to using the Word of God, the primary responsibility of the church has been to ensure that the Word is preached carefully, substantially, and truthfully, and to trust that the Lord will use it. Peter, he writes, This is the Word which was preached to you like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The preaching of God's Word is what matures believers into Christ-likeness. It's vitally important, and it is God's means by which He affects sinners. And I could go on and on, and I'm not going to tonight, about, about preaching, and especially expository and preaching, which equips the saints and edifies the believers and enlarges our faith. It enhances unity. It educates leaders. It encourages assurances. It excites joy, etc., etc. But for the sake of our time, I'm, I'm not able to go there. But expository preaching is the chief means by which the power of God is unleashed to build His church. It is the heavy hammer wielded by the skilled craftsman that shatters the hardest heart and it breaks it wide open. In one of Luther's final sermons, he said this against the Catholic Church. He says, you think that the power is in the relics that you travel to and you venerate in your many pilgrimages. You think there's power in Moses' staff, in Joseph's coat, in Pilate's steps, even Mary's milk. That is not where the power is. God put the power in the Word. 
That's the message people need today and beyond. God didn't place the saving power into people's unique insights or illustrations or personal experiences. No, He put it in the Word, and it is by His Word alone that the lost will be saved and saints will be edified. Finally, not only is Paul devoted to God's divine Word and His Gospel, and not only is he devoted to the primary means by which the Gospel goes out, but he is devoted to the Master's command. Finally, we see here, he says, "...the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior." Paul says he was entrusted, pistuio, meaning to have confidence placed in something or someone. The preaching of God's Word was entrusted to Paul, given into his hands by none other than God Himself, with the expectation that Paul would be faithful with this precious Word. Remember, as Phil preached, that Paul was a slave of God and he wasn't free to do what he wanted to do. He didn't have just any prerogative and go out on his own. He, he, he couldn't do as he well pleased. Paul, he was put on a, a special mission by God entrusted with this great and special gospel which unveils the great pearl of great price. Paul was responsible for taking the gospel message to the ma- masses and he more specifically to the Gentile world. Jesus' commissioning of Paul for his duty is recorded. We see it in three places in the books of Acts. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter nine, verse fifteen, he says, "But the Lord said to him, Go, for he—that's Paul—is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer on my behalf." Acts twenty-two. Verse 14, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will and to see the righteous one and to hear a message from His mouth. For you, Paul, will be a witness to Him, to all people of what you have seen and heard. Acts chapter 26, verse 16, But get up, this is to Paul, and stand upon your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness, not only to the things which you have seen me, but also to the things which I will appear to you. Paul has been commissioned by Christ, engaged by Jesus Christ, and entrusted with bearing Jesus' name to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, commissioned to be Jesus' witness as his servant and witness. As Paul was commissioned by Jesus to take his word to the world, Jesus undertook a miraculous work in the lives of human beings in conjunction with Paul's bearing witness to him. Jesus said he would open their eyes and that they would turn from darkness into light. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.11 that I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Colossians 1.25, we read earlier, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from who? From God. Paul, he did not take his responsibility lightly. That which was committed to him, he was compelled to complete. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about. For I am under compulsion, for woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if 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 against my will, I have been entrusted with a commission nonetheless. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul received the Word of God, was commissioned by the Lord, and divine compulsion to minister this great gospel was laid upon him. Paul received the metaphorical tap on the shoulder and he answered the call. Galatians 1. God set me apart even from the mother's womb, called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. This calling was all of God starting in His mother's womb. It was not an option for Paul. He didn't have it. It was against His will, he even said. 
He says, for I do this voluntarily, then if I have a reward, but if against my will, then I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Paul did not seek this out. It was sought upon him. But he was commanded to preach. And guess what? That's exactly what he did. He followed his master's command. Paul was committed to the ministry of God, that which marked out for him an eternity past. And he was committed to preaching the gospel so that lost souls would come to saving faith. And he was committed to building the faith of the elect so that their lives would be changed and affected so that they would serve Christ with the same fortitude and commitment that Paul had. And I want you to look at the final portion of this verse, and I'm wrapping it up. He says, This commandment, this entrusting of this precious jewel of the gospel message, it was given by the only one who can save, God our Savior. Paul said, I was entrusted with this beautiful word, and all I know is, is that I must be faithful to spread the word. He says, that's my job. That's all I know to do is to cast the seed, is to throw it out. It's not me who saves. It's not me who has to make sure that this person comes to salvation. That's not my job. That's not in my job description. He doesn't say that. He says, I leave that over to God the Savior. It's always been God who's the Savior of mankind. His job description was to spread the message of God who does open blind eyes and bring people out of darkness and into light. The God of this world, Satan, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. They're kept from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God has tasked men and women, preachers of His mighty, magnificent, all-revealing, saving Word, to shout the message from the rooftop so that the Word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will shine within the hearts of unbelievers to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the illuminating work of Christ, dispels satanic blindness that captivates unbelievers. This is a work of new creation, a work of sovereign omnipotence. God is the Savior, and He is the active agent, and He is the and, and He acts upon the creature. And the effect of the Word of God is the is in the lives of human beings as the gospel is preached, is that they are able to perceive the light of the gospel to the glory of Christ, bringing you from one domain, which is Satan's domain, into another realm, which is the kingdom of God. That's the saving work of our God. Of our Savior, and that's who Paul trusted into. That was that is the one who entrusted it into Paul as well. If God can bring Paul, a persecutor of Christians, from serving the world, the flesh, and the devil into serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he can bring anybody to himself. It wasn't Paul who cooperated with God or took steps to God to bring these realities into being. They were exclusively the work of the sovereign Lord. God didn't bring Paul into service because he found more worth in him or the promise of virtue or usefulness in the service of the kingdom. He brought him in because of grace. Paul says, by grace of God, I am what I am. And it is the message of God that went to Paul, the message of Christ that went to Paul in which he was saved as well. And the question to you today is, is that you? Is that you today? Do you know Christ? Have you been to Christ? Have you seen Him? Have you been redeemed by Him? If not, today is the day of salvation. If you have been redeemed, if you have been redeemed and you've repented and you've put your trust in Him, then you are called to herald the Word of God. That is our job description, is herald it. God says, I'll save them. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your saving Word. Thank You for revealing this manifested Word or manifesting this, this, this mystery to Paul. Thank You for the Apostle Paul and Luke and Barnabas and all the early Christians who manifested this Word to the world as they took it from Jerusalem and they spread it out throughout the Asia, Asian countries into Rome. And, he, and Paul finally made it to Rome and, and, it, and it was preached. 
it was preached to Caesar. Father, help us to take this Word to the masses. Help us to be the preachers of our day so that we see a great working of You, Father. No one is going to be saved without hearing the Word of God. Help us today. Give us the power and the strength to be able to, 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 to ignite in our hearts the preaching of Your Word. Thank You for saving lost sinners. I pray for those that do not know You. I pray that they repent and they cry out unto You, trusting in Christ for their salvation. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.